1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number thirty nine in our series for twenty nineteen and today's date is Friday, October the 25th.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? right, I'll do Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
3: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine.
1: Which has just got permission from greater shepparton city council to build a 160 million dollar medicinal cannabis production facility near shepparton victoria when completed it will be one of the world's largest medicinal cannabis facilities creating more than 400 jobs a year for the greater shepparton area and beyond the facility will include a 160,000 square meter growing area under a giant high technology glass house when operating at full production the company aims to produce 160 tonnes of medicinal cannabis per year. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery analysing the latest attempt by the US and China to come up with a trade deal. But now, let's talk to Tommy Huppert. Tommy Hubbard, tell us about this medical cannabis production facility that you have planned for Shepparton.
0: Um, well, thank you, Leon, for um, inviting me today to talk. Um, it's a very exciting project. We we believe that the the project will be one of the um, pioneers in the Victorian medical cannabis landscape, and this particular facility has now been approved by the Greater Shepparton City Council for its development.
1: And it's it's protected cropping, isn't
0: it? Yes. So protected cropping is a a word which describes growing plants or flowers in a greenhouse
1: under protected conditions
0: that's right and to be able to control the climate will allow us to maximize the yield of the plant which ends to obviously uh our patient and 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 consumers if it's food to have far better quality and of course uh, price
1: protected cropping is quite big in europe isn't it
0: it certainly is so europe completely different climate to australia And they have a very vast population, uh, which they need to feed. And even in Spain, we have almost 200 square kilometres of protected cropping greenhouses. So this is quite a a developed industry in Europe.
1: And I'd imagine it's also quite big in Holland as well.
0: Sure. The the Dutch are the pioneers in this space. Um, Being the pioneers in the flower industry, and also in the, the greenhouse um, industry in terms of developing technology, building greenhouses all over the world.
1: You are, you are using Dutch technology, aren't you?
0: Yes, yeah, so when we decided to, to build the project in Shepparton, we had a lot of discussions with the experts who come from Holland, and they are actually involved in a number of projects in this space, medicinal cannabis all over the world. Tell us about
1: the cannabis market. I mean, it grows everywhere, doesn't it? I mean, out in houses, streets, illegally, and it's all on the black market.
0: So cannabis has been used for thousands of years. This is an old plant. However, from a regulatory perspective, it is extremely new. In fact, it's only two and a half years since the Narcotic Drugs Amendment Act was passed In the fastest patches of legislation in October 2016. And we're seeing now the early movers who have been fortunate to receive licenses from the Office of Drug Control, commercialise their projects, begin plans, um, lodge with local councils, and we're now seeing a lot of activity in this space all over Australia, which will provide a number of benefits, not only provide a complementary medicine, a therapeutic product of choice, but also all the human resources required to support that industry.
1: That's fascinating. I mean, it it reminds me a bit of like uh, Prohibition, uh, the end of Prohibition when alcohol was illegal in the US and suddenly Prohibition was lifted and it created an enormous industry.
0: Yes, this, uh, in the 1930s, when we hear stories of moonshine and people making their own uh, drinks and alcohol and And distillation which uh, can be quite dangerous the governments of the world regulated alcohol for adult use and here we have 70 years later it's highly restricted we have bottle shops as the retailers you have to show your ID but the market is regulated the government taxes and and everyone benefits however alcohol being a different type of drug we know the effects and i i don't think this is the forum to discuss that but let's look at cannabis we've had 70 years of prohibition before that the cannabis plant was a central part of pharmacopeia you would go to a chemist in the 19th century uh, and you can actually see a, a pharmacy in sovereign hill and if you look on the shelf you'll see cannabis sativa plant extract
1: that's quite extraordinary that's quite extraordinary now i mean but uh the issue, though, too, is that it, it's a lot of it's illegally grown plants is just black money, which means the government gets nothing in terms of GST or anything like that.
0: Certainly, they're missing out in a big way, and I think that has come to the forefront since the legislation. Economic models are being presented. Obviously, this is data which is unknown. So it's taken a bit of time, I think, for the, uh, uh, the government and the politicians and also the mainstream investment community to actually really get an understanding of the potential of this product. And we believe it's the largest cash crop industry in Australia.
1: I mean, this is despite the fact that uh, cannabis is often stigmatised as an illegal drug.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the cannabis plant that we have heard about or not heard about has been stigmatised to the point of books being ripped out of libraries there was a campaign in the '30s called Reefer Madness, and if you Google that, you'll see all the stories where we can't even the, 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 we can't even find the books about it; they just don't exist. So we have this incredible surge of research in the last few years. It is the most research plant on, plant on the planet.
1: Now, now how, so how big would the cannabis market be in Australia?
0: We believe there's 300 to 500 eligible patients under the current scheme. Most of those patients don't even know they're eligible. So we're finding that more and more uh, people, when they visit their GP, are asking about uh, an alternative medicine to what's traditionally been prescribed. And medicinal cannabis now has come as an optional therapeutic product of choice.
1: So tell us about this production facility. You you will expect to to be built when, and when will it be operational?
0: So Canatrec as a as a enterprise in this space actually is in operations in queensland we have a facility which has been built commissioned and is um, already under permit and the facility in shepparton is a scaled production facility and we hope to start phase one towards the end of this year with potential to be in production by the end of next year
1: and you will be selling it directly to pharmacies and to people who need it?
0: So the way the, the legislation operates in Australia is that cultivators like ourselves grow the material. They then pass it to a manufacturer who in turn sells it to a wholesaler or pharmacy for it to be dispensed like any other medicine.
1: What is extraordinary is the number of jobs this could create. What's your assessment of
0: that? So... We see it's a very hands-on product. It uh, is labour-intensive. For our facility in Shepparton, we believe that in excess of 400 jobs will be created, and that's in the facility itself, not including the maintenance or the uh, the down-the-supply chain um, jobs which will be required to support the entire industry.
1: So we're talking here thousands of jobs?
0: I believe that the industry will need more than 10,000 jobs in Australia industry-wide over the next few years as the industry develops.
1: Do you see any export potential
0: for this? Absolutely. We have in our legislation embedded imports and exports for Australia to really be a major world exporter of medicinal cannabis to countries who may not be able to grow. They may not have the right climate conditions or returning back to the protected cropping So we're really situated, we have sun, obviously we're a a barren land, however we do have water resources. So Australia really is in a a perfect ideal position globally to be a production um, source for the world.
1: And so what would be the major markets you'd be targeting globally?
0: I think Europe as a population centre definitely is a major market um, considering they don't have the ideal climate um, that we have. However, there are are obviously some areas that do have the appropriate climate. However, at scale, I think we have an advantage here in Australia. And also into the Asia-Pacific region. Japan this year has also initiated legislation for access. They're not growing at the moment, but they have a very large demographic, which we believe will be accessible for medicinal cannabis.
1: Well, that is quite exciting. And uh, so... From next year, we're going to see major things happening in medicinal cannabis because of this production facility in Shepparton.
0: Certainly there will be a number of facilities and we're, we're very fortunate to be able to engage with the uh, the, the council in Shepparton and have their support. And I really believe that this whole industry is a, a one-in-a-hundred-year event similar to prohibition of alcohol. We're seeing it in our generation post-prohibition for the regulation of of medicinal cannabis
1: well tommy hubbard that's fascinating stuff and thank you very much for your time pleasure and now let's talk to Rabobank economist michael every well michael uh the latest trade deal with uh, the us and china donald trump is saying it's a wonderful thing but uh the markets are a bit uh, cautious about it and uh, there seems to be too many unanswered questions what's your view about that
3: Well, I'm a little bit unhappy because usually I'm the cynic saying that there isn't going to be a trade deal or if there is a trade deal, it isn't real and we shouldn't get excited about it. And the market all runs in the opposite direction and doesn't listen to me. Uh, And I'm a kind of a lonely voice in the wilderness feeling feeling smug when I'm proved right. But at the moment, everyone seems to be agreeing with the rather cynical perspective that I've been taking from the very beginning, that this deal uh, really doesn't have much substance to it. As, As somebody wittier than myself said, Most U.S.-China trade deals aren't worth the paper they're written on, and this one isn't even written on paper. So (laughs) it remains to be seen if there's anything there at all. And, in fact, just 36 hours after Trump was out telling the whole world that this is the most amazing, great deal, and that U.S. farmers had hit pay dirt, and those are his words, not mine. You know, China actually doesn't call it a deal. They say that we've made, uh, you know, substantial progress towards the deal, But nothing concrete yet they haven't agreed to sign anything and in fact, we've just seen breaking news that they've actually come out and said they're going to insist December tariffs that the US was set to impose are taken off the table before they even agree to continue negotiations towards signing the first phase (laughs) And that first phase itself is as far as the deal is ever going to get if anything does happen uh, There's never going to be any serious structural changes taking place from from China's point of view so However you slice it, there really isn't very much going on here, and there may be absolutely nothing going on, potentially. Uh, There's, of
1: course, a lot of uh, issues on the table that haven't been resolved, such as technology transfer. That's a big
3: one. Yeah, and they won't be. There is just no way, shape or form in which China will ever realistically give ground on these things. They can say they will. They can sign a piece of paper. That doesn't really mean very much uh, when you do deals with China, as everyone who does deals with China knows. But from their long-run, you know, strategic perspective, they need that technology. Uh, they need to ensure they can move up the value chain as fast as possible to make sure that they're selling brand-name household goods to the rest of the world the same way that you know Japanese and South Korean firms do now. Um, so that's simply not going to happen. I don't see how any element, any excuse me, any element of it is actually going to happen uh, in a way that would make the US happy. And that's why the very most optimistic scenario you have really is that somehow we can overcome the bumps that we've seen just in the past few hours, uh, that the U.S. agrees to delay the tariffs in December, and China says we'll continue negotiating. And over the next few weeks, they do strike a deal where China will buy lots of U.S. agri products. uh, And we just stay there in stasis until after the 2020 elections. And then this all continues much, much worse under the next president. And that's the most optimistic that we're going to get.
1: Right, right, right. And, uh, and so you're, you don't anticipate the markets, uh, well, the markets seem to be reacting with some scepticism. This will continue.
3: I think the markets are right for once, and uh, I don't say that too often, but I, I think they're right to be sceptical. I don't see on an underlying basis what is really going to be achievable here. And certainly there does not appear to be any realistic possibility of the US and China finding a new détente. or or a new modus vivendi, where both of them are happy and both of them have come to understand what each other's role is in the global economy and vis-a-vis each other, uh, and that there's trust and friendship there. I simply don't see it.
1: Well, Steve Mnuchin has uh, said he expects officials will be working in the coming weeks to get the first stage ready for both sides to sign. Uh, He seems to be uh, optimistic there, uh, but uh, uh,
3: one would say... um, Yeah, well... sorry to interrupt Steve Mnuchin, and I called him Steve Manu China um, just, just had an A on the end he he 's consistently been the most optimistic one right the way along because he works for you know the Treasury rather than the other departments, uh, and he of all the trump 's cabinet is still a free trader, um, so of course he 's always going to accentuate the positive also additionally because he has a wall Street background, and one of the incentives that China has already thrown in is partially liberalizing their financial sector, which would benefit, uh, at least on paper, uh, Wall Street. So therefore, the man who comes from Wall Street finds that acceptable. (laughs) No real political surprise there at all. If we see Robert Lighthizer, who's the hawk, stepping forward and saying he thinks this is a good deal, other than for Trump politically, then I think we really have something to build on. But I don't see any optimism like that coming from Lighthizer.
1: So what, where do you think this will sit with Trump politically
3: uh, in the lead-up to 2020? Well, the analysis you read really depends on how people see Trump. Um, I, so even the headlines written by the journalists depend on whether they're prior or anti-Trump. It's very easy to look at it, for example, and say Trump uh, was really humiliated by China over this negotiation because you can say China hasn't agreed to make any structural reforms. They haven't agreed to do a great big grand deal. Uh, And Trump really has gone through all this trade war to achieve very little at the end. You can absolutely make that case. Equally, I think with more validity, you can turn around and say, okay, Trump's put 25% tariffs on nearly half of what China exports, and they're not going away. You have the imposition of a 15% tariff uh, on another slice of exports, and that's not going away. Uh, you have the threat of a further 15% on the last flight coming in on December. And for the moment, that hasn't gone away. Uh, you have the Huawei issue, which is continuing to take a hard line on. You've got visa restrictions on Chinese scientists coming in. You've got an entity blacklist uh, trying to stop technology flows uh, to and from China and the U.S. So you have all manner of hard lines still being pursued. And yet at the same time, China is going to be, on paper, buying a vast amount of U.S. agricultural products which is Trump's base. So I think you can make just as strong an argument that Trump wins from this if if things don't change from where they are at the moment. But I think if China, of course, doesn't match what Trump is promising and the likelihood is they won't match what he's promising, he's also got a get-out-of-jail-free card that he can turn around and say, my goodness me, I thought they were acting in good faith and they're not and therefore raised tariffs even higher and come across as an even stronger China hawk than he already does. So I think politically for Trump, it's, it's very useful either way.
1: Right. And of course, uh, the fact that they're going to be buying more soybeans is, uh, is a pitch to his voting base,
3: the farmers. Well, it is. I mean, where Trump would be silly is to think that they're actually going to seriously do it and keep doing it. Because if China has learned one thing from this process, it's that the trade relations they had with the US prior to the trade war starting can no longer continue the same way. If you look at Chinese trade data, and we had numbers just this week, you'll see that imports are down sharply year on year. A lot of that's driven by the US, but it's actually driven by many other countries too. And what you're seeing China doing is basically trying to make sure that everything they can grow domestically or produce domestically, they are doing, and to minimise their exposure with the rest of the world. They still want to export. Sadly, their exports for them are down year on year, but they're trying very hard to export. They want to import as little as possible which actually has been their economic model all along, really. But they're doing it even more. Uh, and I'm sure in the future, vis-a-vis soy, they will do the same thing. Even if they buy a lot from the U.S., who's to say they don't stockpile it, continue to expand plantations in Latin America, look for supply from Russia in the future, et cetera, et cetera, and have plenty in the stockpile so they know that the next time the U.S. turns around and says, we're going to squeeze you, they can say, fine, you know, we've got enough in the bank, we don't have to worry about it. And then, of course, U.S. farmers will be even more exposed having doubled down on their bet that China is their future market. So if Trump does fall for that trap, then he's naive. But if he doesn't, then all it says to me is that the the decoupling between the US and China uh, is going to accelerate.
1: So we have a fair way still to go, and there is no real hope in sight for an end to this trade war, despite this
3: deal. Well, I, I don't think... Well, I don't think there's any way to go. And I think the only place we're going to go is divorce. Uh, So the the question is whether we get there quickly or slowly. And at the moment, it's somewhat more slowly because there's, you know, potentially some can kicking that can take place. But even that can kicking may not be realistic and we may try and kick the can and miss it. But, yeah, I I don't see where this goes other than a decoupling of the two economies step by step for all that that will be resisted by opinion writers and politicians in the West, it still seems to me to be the most likely scenario. So where does that leave the global economy? Bifurcated. Um, I don't think we'll be talking about a global economy. I think we'll be talking about separate regional economies, um, and that will happen fast uh, in some areas and slowly in others but the general trend will be moving in that direction in exactly the same way that you don't have the same electricity standard all around the world. And you have to have an adapter and plugs in Australia aren't the same as in the UK. I think we'll find that we'll have different regional groupings of trade like that. Now, some commodities may sit above that all. That's entirely possible, but I think it's far more likely that you'll start to see a China centric trading block, um, us centric trading block, a European centric trading block, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you know, Speaking from Australia today, that puts one certain country that I can think of in a very, very awkward position, given where its economic links lie relative to its political links. But that's the particular flashpoint that Australia is always going to have to deal with at some point in the future, and which is why there is so much denial right the way across the political spectrum that it ever will, and this hope that somehow push won't come to shove. But it does appear to me that at some point logic suggests that it will.
1: Well, that's uh, troubling troubling, uh, ideas, and... uh... Michael, thank you very much for your time.
3: You're very welcome.
1: So what's happening in the news? Well, President Donald Trump says China has vindicated that negotiations over an initial trade deal are advancing, raising expectations the nation's leaders could sign an agreement at a meeting next month in Chile. They have started the buying, Trump said Monday during a cabinet meeting at the White House, referring to Chinese purchases of the US agricultural products that the president has pushed for as part of the deal. I want more, he added. Earlier Monday, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said that it was more important to get details of the agreement right than it was for Trump to sign it, at an expected meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping next month in Chile. And more than half the world's banks are too weak to survive a downturn, according to a survey from consultancy firm McKinsey & Co. A majority of banks globally may not be economically viable because their returns on equity aren't keeping pace with costs, McKinsey said in its annual review of the industry. It urged firms to take steps such as developing technology, farming out operations and bulking up through mergers ahead of a potential economic slowdown. In its report, the firm said banks risk becoming footnotes to history as new entrants change consumer behaviour. More recent attempts by banks to boost efficiency have been business as usual, it said. Banks allocate just 35% of their information technology budgets to innovation, while fintechs spend more than 70%, McKinsey said. Combined with regulatory factors lowering the barrier to entry, like open banking and looser requirements for startups, the environment is increasingly conducive for newer firms to take share from banks. The report points to Amazon.com in the US and Ping In in China as examples of technology firms that are capturing financial services' customers. To make matters worse for the old guard, the new players tend to go after the business areas that create the highest returns of banks. Credit cards, for example. And ANZ Roy Morgan, Australian Consumer Confidence, made a partial recovery last week, rising 0.6% after the prior week's 1.2% drop. Current finances dropped 2.4%, however. This component is now down nearly 10% from its August high. Future finances gained 0.4%, taking it back above its long-term average. Current economic conditions gained 0.3%, while future economic conditions declined by 1.1%. Both the sub-indices are below their long-term average. And falling house prices and the weaker Australian dollar caused the number of millionaires in the country to tumble, with Australia losing 124,000 millionaires who fell below the global mark in US dollar terms. Wealth per adult slipped from US 411,060, that's 599,000 Aussie, to US 386,060, meaning the average Aussie lost... $36,000 $36,000 over the year, according to Credit Suisse's 2019 Global Wealth Report. No country in the world lost as much as Australia, which fell from being the second in the global ranking in 2018 to fourth into 2019. Up until the May federal election, the national housing market had lost billions of dollars in value over an 18-month period, which Credit Suisse attributed to declining wealth of average Aussies. Free rate cuts from the Reserve Bank of Australia also weighed on the currency, which has steadily depreciated over the year. And shaky confidence in the capital city apartment market is hitting off-the-plan buyers hard, with a significant rise in the number of newly constructed units now worth less at completion than the price they were originally purchased for. According to CoreLogic data for August, more than half of newly constructed off-the-plan apartments in Sydney and Melbourne were worth less than the owners bought them for. Nearly a third of off-the-plan apartments in Sydney were worth at least 10% less. The data shows that 60% of off the plan apartments in Sydney and 52.9% in Melbourne were valued lower than their contract price at the time of settlement. The latest figure from the property data provider CoreLogic for the month of August shows that nearly a third of off the plan buyers in Sydney were moving into new apartments worth at least 10% less than the price they purchased them for. Just two months ago, less than 16% of newly constructed New South Wales units were valued below contract price after they were completed. And dramatic hikes in insurance premiums combined with tighter lending in response to climate risk could trigger a wider property market correction, according to data from the firm Climate Risk. Analysis from the firm shows the number of of uninsurable addresses in Australia is projected to double by the turn of the century to nearly 720,000, or 1 in 20, if nothing is done to address escalating risk from extreme weather and climate change. Thousands more will see their insurance premiums double or even triple within decades, the data reveals. Climate Risk's clients include governments, banks, mortgage lenders and other key players in the insurance and finance industry. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has left Washington upbeat about challenges facing the global and domestic economies, including a more positive outlook for a US-China trade fix, even as the IMF warned Australia must tackle tax reform and that next year's budget may need to tap some of the surplus to stimulate growth. Mr Frydenberg said his message was there's no need to panic and that the global economy remains sound after three days of intense talks with counterparts from around the world, including US Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, UK Chancellor of the Exchequer Sajid Javid and India's Neomila Sitharaman. Washington's economic managers were pretty upbeat about their economy, he said, and the language from the Americans and Chinese was more positive than I've heard previously about their ability to resolve some of the differences. The Treasurer's optimism was echoed by one of the world's most powerful Australian executives, Morgan Stanley Chief Executive James Gorman, who told a Finance Forum in Washington that US consumer balance sheets were in very strong shape. And the federal government will move ahead with an industrial relations change that will set the same wages and conditions for the construction lifetime of new major projects, a move, it says, will provide investor certainty and head off costly industrial action. Although Labor went to the election proposing to consider the policy if it won, both it and the union movement have cooled since, creating the potential for a clash with the government over industrial relations. A month after releasing a discussion paper canvassing lifetime workplace agreements for greenfields projects such as mines, gas fields and major infrastructure developments, Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter said the response had been so positive the government would proceed with legislating the change. The government said the changes would prevent cases of agreements expiring mid-project and stop workers accessing protected industrial action to apply maximum pressure to employers for wages and conditions. The unions, who stayed silent before the election are now hostile to the idea, while Labor is deeply sceptical. And the goods and services tax would be broadened, stamp, stamp duties scrapped, and messy federal-state funding agreements abolished under a call for a major reform of the Federation proposed by the New South Wales Government. In a bid to make states less dependent on Canberra and take advantage of 1 in 60 year alignment of state and federal political cycles, New South Wales said it wanted to drive a national vision for the Federation that encourages innovation and competition. Declaring the federal financial architecture fundamentally flawed, New South Wales Treasurer Dominic Perrottet, who established a panel to review the state's federal financial relations, said states, especially New South Wales and Victoria, needed to take the lead in advocating the benefits of reducing their financial dependence. Victoria and New South Wales plan on closely coordinating any reforms. The first of a series of reports by the Review of Financial Relations, chaired by former Telstra Chief Executive David Thodey, and including former New Zealand Prime Minister Bill English, singles out highly inefficient property stamp duty and the shrinking coverage of the GST. The report goes well beyond the agenda set by Josh Freidenberg at a meeting of state and federal treasurers earlier this month, which focused on measures to boost the nation's productivity and to develop actionable items in the areas of transport, health, skills and environmental regulations. And more than $40 million in unpaid wages were handed back to Australian workers in the past financial year. The Fair Work Ombudsman recovered the money for 17,718 workers in 2018-19, according to the organisation's annual report. The workplace watchdog confirmed fast food restaurants and cafes are a key priority, with a series of high-profile wage theft scandals plaguing the industry in recent years. Hospitality accounted for 36% of all reports, almost tripling the second-ranked sector, which was retail. And Australia is on track to produce its smaller winter grain crop for more than a decade as tough times for farmers get even tougher, Rabobank says. The specialist rural lender predicts a winter crop will reach just 27.7 million tonnes as a harvest kicks into the gear in some parts of the country as ongoing severe drought conditions continue to take their toll on many of the nation's main cropping regions. The production shortages that have resulted in record premiums for grain for flour milling and to feed livestock are expected to put pressure on food prices and further weaken Australia's position in key export markets. Rabobank expects a 50% increase in grain imports after the federal government took the unusual step of allowing local flour millers to import some 360,000 tonnes of high-protein wheat from Canada this year. The Rabobank production update represents a 6 million tonne downgrade on the official federal forecast from last month, of a 33.9 million ton winter crop, and Australia's junior mining ranks have shrunk to the lowest level in four years. An accounting firm, BDO, in, believes insolvencies are likely to rise on the back of a two-year high in the number of companies close to exhausting their cash reserve. The pain is extending to landlords, restaurants, and airlines. With analysis finding the junior resources sector have spent about 22% less on administration costs in the first half of 2019, compared to the same period of 2018. The ASX requires explorers to file a quarterly cash flow statement, better known as an Appendix 5B, and BDO said 666 companies lodged an Appendix 5B in the three months of June 30. That was down from 618 in the first three months of a year, more than 700 a year ago, and was the lowest number since BDO started tracking Appendix 5Bs in 2015. While a range of factors played into the decline, BDO noted that tough times in the sector saw ten companies delisted and three suspended during the period. Two further junior resources companies were acquired by companies with no connection to the resources sector, and the change of business model means they will no longer need to publish an Appendix 5B every three months. The average cash balance held by an Australian exploration companies declined from $5.62 million to $5.39 million in the three months to June 30. The number of companies with less than $1 million of cash on hand rose to the highest level since 2017, with 41% of companies in such dire straits. In June 2018, that proportion stood at 31%, and more than 16% of companies had less than $500,000 on hand at June the 30th. And the Australian Commission for Law Enforcement Integrity will next month hold public hearings as it escalates its investigation into corruption claims surrounding Crown Resorts' international high roller program. Michael Griffin, the head of the Australian Commission for Law Enforcement Integrity, said the hearings are set to examine interactions between Crown and the Department of Home Affairs. These raise issues of corruption, he said. The Morrison government referred allegations to the ACLEI in July. Following revelations by The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and 60 Minutes, the Crown Resorts had partnered with tour companies backed by organised crime syndicates implicated in drug running, money laundering and human trafficking in order to attract wealthy Chinese gamblers. And the health sector is responsible for nearly one in five data breaches in Australia and finance is not far behind and wrongly sent emails are mostly to blame, the privacy watchdog says. The nation's finance and health sectors are ground zero for data breaches, Australia's privacy watchdog has found. Private health service providers provided 19% of the total breaches reported between April and June under the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner's National Data Breach Scheme. The finance sector was next, with 17% of data breaches for the period, the Commission said in its latest report. This was followed by the legal, accounting and management services sector, 10%, the private education sector, 9%, and the retail sector, 6%. The most common information revealed in the breaches was contact information at 90%, Financial details, 42%. Identity information, 31%. Health information, 27%. Tax file numbers, 16%. And other sensitive information, 9%. Human error was the leading cause of data breaches in the health sector, accounting for 55% of breaches compared with an average of 35% for all other industries annually. Personal information sent to the wrong recipient was the most common human error breach in the health sector, whether by email, mail or other forms of communication. In the finance sector, Human error accounted for 41% of data breaches, higher than the cross-sectoral average of 35%. And Australia's two largest magazine rivals will come together in a blockbuster $40 million deal. Bauer Media, owner of Kerry Packer's former stable of titles, has procured Pacific magazines from the Kerry Stokes-controlled Seven West media. The deal combines more than 50 gossip and lifestyle magazines and means that seminal titles, such as the 86-year-old Australian Women's Weekly and Women's Day will have to learn to coexist with arch rivals like Pacific's New Idea and Betty Homes and Gardens. The deal remains subject to approval from the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. An ACO probed 275 foreign investment proposals last year, its second highest vetting on record, reflecting the Australian Security and Intelligence Organisation's concern about personal data and critical infrastructure being acquired by Chinese and other foreign actors. The 12% annual rise in the number of foreign-backed buyers reviewed by ASIO was also a big spike in activity on five years earlier, when its annual report did not mention the word foreign investment or the Foreign Investment Review Board. ASIO's latest 2018-19 annual report said its assessments of 275 proposed acquisitions provided advice to the government on the potential for a foreign power to conduct espionage, foreign interference or sabotage through its involvement in specific investments. And the retail malaise seems to bypass online retailer Kogan, which reported gross sales rising more than 16% in the September quarter and gross profits climbed more than 28%, as a strong 35% in higher-margin private label or house brands offset a material decline in third-party brands. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Rod Horan, the Managing Director of Joseph Palmer & Sons, talking about all the financial issues facing the aging population. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about restoring trust. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, Talking Biz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
2: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues